Our text today is from John 20, 24 through 28. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now, a week after Easter, I imagine that there are some people that didn't get the rush and maybe even the experience that Easter typically offers. And so for for some of us, myself included, we just need to sit into it for a little bit longer, God. Be with us as many of of Thomas's are are in our own hearts. Many of us just kind of missed last week and are still like stuck inside and um, we really need an experience from you. I pray that that would happen. I pray that you would meet us um, in all our different homes this morning. In the powerful name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Today is the second Sunday of Easter, and traditionally in liturgical calendars, which is like a, the church calendar, um, we are now entering into Easter Tide, which is six weeks leading up to Jesus' ascension. Now, here's the thing. I've always found it strange to talk about Easter after Easter. I've never done an Easter Tide message. Frankly, after Easter, I'm kind of over Easter. I just have done Easter for so for so long leading up to it that after Easter, I'm like, hey, that's done. We're moving on to the next thing. But not this year. This year, I feel a lot like Thomas in our text. Like I missed Easter last week, and I hope that Jesus shows up the next Sunday. In our text, it's actually the Sunday after Easter, so basically today. And the disciples are still locked behind closed doors. And Jesus goes through the locked doors and says what he said last week. Same thing. Peace be with you. But this time Thomas is there. See, Thomas gets a pretty bad reputation in church history. We call him Doubting Thomas. The reason is is that on Easter Sunday when Jesus made his way through the locked doors of the disciples' hideout to reveal himself resurrected, Thomas wasn't there. We have no idea where Thomas was, probably in line at Whole Foods. But when he shows back up to the hideout where the other disciples are, they say to Thomas, you missed Easter. Essentially, that's what they say to him. You missed the resurrected Jesus. He was just here and we had the best time. Actually, these are the words that they use. Verse 25, we have seen the Lord. The word seen there is the uh, in the original, is the word experience. It doesn't just simply mean seen. It means we've experienced the Lord. We didn't just see him. We had an experience with him. We saw his hands and his feet. We talked with him, and he even breathed on us the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, you missed that part, too. He breathed on us, and we received the Spirit. Thomas infamously, infamously responds, unless I see the nail marks in his hands. Well, this is, this is fair enough. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, Thomas says, because that's exactly what the disciples saw. And Thomas says, unless I put my finger where his, his, the nails were, which is actually kind of weird and gross, and unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. 
I want that sentence to linger a bit. I will not believe. This is what we call doubt. Thomas deliberately chose not to believe. Thomas chose to doubt. He chose it. He looked at his friends, he heard their witness, and he said, no, I will not believe that. Where does doubt like this come from? Doubt can come from all sorts of places. For some, doubt takes hold when we live through a crisis, when we lose someone that we love, or we go through some great suffering or some great pain, or we're quarantined indoors for five weeks. Doubt seeps in. It takes over. Doubt takes over in times of crises. If you're listening to this and you don't have a Christian faith background, tragedies and crises can drive you deeper into the idea that there is no such thing as a good God. If you do have a relationship with Christ, crises can cause doubt to sneak its way into your life, and you start to wonder if God is real and if he can really be trusted at all. For Thomas, his doubt was rooted in a loss of hope. It's the doubt of someone who had their heart broken and doesn't want to fall in love again. A lot of us can relate to this. It's the doubt of someone who has been so hurt that they guard themselves from ever being hurt like that again. It's when someone you love breaks your trust and you are filled with doubt and skepticism to trust them again, to trust anyone again. It's when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would and the world doesn't seem as safe as it was anymore. My favorite writer calls, calls this despair. He says real despair isn't depression or emotional illness. It can lead there, but real despair is actually more subtle than that. He says this, despair is the death of our sense of surprise. The belief that nothing new can happen to us. We despair at the precise moment when Consciously or unconsciously, we say in resignation, that, this, that is what I am. That is the way things have always been for me. And that is the way it will always be. For me, it's too late. Once this has been said, we are in a tomb. Much of us is dead and more of us is still dying. Despair is that place where we can no longer trust where we can no longer allow ourselves to be surprised by hope, to be surprised by love. We close or we entomb ourselves in despair and we say, this, I missed it. This is who I am. I can never change. This is where Thomas was, in a despair that was born inside of his doubt. Now hang on to that because that, that point's important. Hang on, I'll come back to that later. Now, here's where, what's tricky about doubt. Doubt's pretty tricky. It's kind of slippery. Doubt isn't necessarily immoral. That, doubt isn't even a bad thing. See, doubt isn't the enemy of faith. In some ways, doubt is required for faith. But doubt can be dangerous. Doubt can keep us in despair and away from hope because doubt is that thin space between reality and hope. Doubt is that little strip of land that, that lives between reality and hope. It goes like this. Reality says, Jesus 
died. He was crucified and buried. This is Thomas's reality. Jesus died. I saw it with my own eyes. But Hope says, maybe my friends are right. Maybe he did rise from the dead. But Doubt says, there's no way. Life and death don't work like that. Doubt and Doubt is that subtle bit of real estate between what is reality and what could be hope. Reality says, I just lost my job and I'm stuck at home. Hope says, God will provide for me through the community of faith. I and my family will be okay. God will activate the community of faith to take care of us. Doubt says, are you sure about that? Doubt says, you aren't their problem to solve. Doubt says, you bet on the wrong career path. Here's the thing. If you stay in the terrain of doubt too long, despair will pull you down and never let you move towards hope, ever. Despair will pull you down. If you stay there, it becomes your new zip code. Doubt can turn into despair and keep you from hope. And keep you from even wanting to hope again. I will not believe. But the text goes on to say, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he stood and said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out and put your hand um, into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What we learn here is the same thing we learned last week. And just in case, like me, you missed it, I'll say it again. Hope comes through locked doors. Thomas is locked inside. But not inside the four walls of his house. He's actually locked inside and enclosed in despair. He's locked inside doubt and disappointment. He can't move from reality to hope. So hope comes to him. Jesus comes to the locked doors of his despair and pulls him towards hope again. And here's how we know that Thomas's hope had a resurrection. Here's how we know Thomas's hope was restored. How we know he moved from reality and safely got towards hope again. He didn't need the evidence. He didn't need what he demanded. Remember, out of his despair and his doubt, he said, I will not believe, not until I put my fingers where his nails were, not until I put my hand into his side. We have that very beautiful and famous painting by Caravaggio of Thomas putting his finger into Jesus' side. You're seeing it right now on the screen. Here's the thing about that painting. First of all, Jesus wasn't white, and that didn't happen. Not in our text anyways. He doesn't need anything that he demanded. He only needed to experience Jesus. And when that happened, and that can happen to all of us, he moved towards hope again. But I, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about hope for a minute. How do we hope? When we're stuck in doubt, moving towards despair, maybe you're there because of the circumstances of or our emotions or our situation, and we start to feel low, and we start to feel self-pity, we start to sulk, we start to ignore text messages, and we start to not reach out to friends, and we start to spiral. 
Maybe we even start to demand from God what that, that he'll do this or that, and until he does, we will not believe in him anymore. When you are there, and you might be there, I honestly was pretty much there when I woke up on the Monday morning after Easter. We all get there, stuck between reality and hope, and not able to move forward towards hope anymore. When you are there, how do you get unstuck? How do you hope again? Well, what does Jesus say to Thomas here? I think this is key. Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Now, in the words of my wife, this is easier said than done. What do these words of Jesus tell us? First, these words tell us that doubt is the seedbed of faith. Doubt is where faith and belief are born. Doubt is where faith and belief can be born. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. It's often the environment in which faith and belief can emerge. See, if you eliminate doubt, you also eliminate faith. To remove all doubt, you no longer need faith. If you're waiting for a a UPS package in the mail that you're tracking, let's say, you have both doubt and faith coexisting as you're waiting for this package to arrive. Will the package get there on time? Well, of course it will because it says I'm tracking it and says it's in Des Moines or whatever. Will it arrive to its right destination? Will it get stolen on the way? So you have in the middle of faith and doubt working simultaneously. There's doubt and there's faith. But the second that package arrives and you open it up to find your box of hand sanitizer, doubt disappears. But so does faith. Faith is no longer required because you have it. See, this is what we have. We have a choice to make when we're in the middle of what could be. We have a choice to make. Will we stay in doubt? Will we treat doubt like it's reality? Or will we move forward in hope? Will we move from doubt to hope through the vehicle of faith? That's the real question when we're stuck in the middle. See, Jesus coming through the locked doors to meet Thomas a week after Easter was about making sure Thomas didn't get stuck in his doubt. He didn't want doubt to have the last word. He didn't want doubt and despair to be where Thomas spent his mental energy and emotional bandwidth. He wanted him to believe. So hope has a lot to do with faith. Let me show you how this works. Reality says Jesus died, crucified, buried, it's over, game over, Jesus died. Hope says, but maybe he did rise from the dead. Doubt says there's no way in the world he rose from the dead. That's not how it works. Faith says, my Lord and my God. I believe. Reality says, I lost my job. I'm stuck at home. Hope says, God will provide for me through the community of faith. I will be taken care of. I trust God to do this. Doubt says, are you sure about that? Faith says, I will reach out anyway. I will put my needs out there anyways. I'll trust that God will will mobilize his people. I'll continue to trust. And this is where faith and hope as theological virtues, you know the theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. This is how the theological virtues of faith and hope work together. Here's what hope means. Hope is a vision of life that guides itself by faith in God's promise, irrespective of whether the situation looks optimistic or pessimistic 
at any given time. See, the reason why Thomas was stuck in the despair of doubt was that his hope was in something that he could control. His hope was in Jesus doing what all kings and all rulers and all heroes do on earth. That is, they crush their enemies and they rule over people. But Jesus was crushed by his fellow brothers and sisters and didn't pick up any earthly rule. He died on a cross and he was buried. The situation was bleak. The plans Thomas had for the future were destroyed and he lost hope. Biblical hope. Biblical hope is a vision of life that guides itself by faith in God's promise. Jesus said to them, I'm leaving, but I'll come back. He said, I won't leave you as orphans. He says, destroy this temple and I will rise it and raise it in three days. Biblical hope is faith that God will get what God wants, that God's promises will never fail. And this is different from optimism. The philosopher and the Jesuit priest, Talard de Chardin, was once accused of being overly idealistic and unrealistic in the face of all the negative things happening in the world. A critic had challenged him. He said, suppose we blow up the world with nuclear, a nuclear bomb. What then happens to your vision of, of the world coming together in peace? Talard's response gives the framework for biblical hope. He said this, if we blow up the world by nuclear bombs, that will set things back some millions of years. But eventually, what Christ promised will come about. Not because I wish it, but because God has promised it. And in the resurrection, God has shown that God is powerful enough to deliver on that promise. That is biblical hope. Henry Nouwen was once asked, are you an optimist? His reply, no, not naturally, but that isn't important. I live in hope, not optimism. See, some of you optimists right now are getting pounded. You are finding it hard to hold on to your optimism. Our world is too unstable. There's not enough good news in our news cycle for you to hold on to optimism anymore. So here's what I would like to do. I would like to invite you to hope. Biblical hope is not simple optimism. It is not wishful thinking. It's not idealism that will not let itself be defeated by what is negative. Hope looks square at reality as it shows itself on the daily news. It looks at all the facts and it looks at God's promise and then without denying the facts or turning away from reality, it lives out of a vision of life based on God's promise. During the Vietnam War, Vice Admiral James Stockdale spent seven years tortured in a Hanoi prison. When asked about his experience, he noted that optimistic prison mates eventually broke as they passed one imagined deadline for release after another. Stockdale's strategy instead was to meld hope with realism. He said, quote, the need for absolute unwavering faith that you can prevail with the discipline to begin by confronting the brutal facts, whatever they are. This is more akin to biblical hope. It's facing the world as it is, not trying to find hope in some deadline that no one knows right now, but an absolute unwavering faith that what God has promised 
God will bring about, that God will make all things new, that God will exchange beauty for ashes, that God will rise with healing in his wings. There's much more to say about hope, and I hope to continue this topic next week. But for now, let's pray. Lord, I want to pray that your hope would make its way through the locked doors of everyone listening, and you would start to supply us with biblical hope, a hope in the resurrection of all things, hope that you will make all things new, hope that we can look at our world, sometimes as bleak as it is, and know that you, Lord, have won the day through the resurrection, that we can hope in you, and we can, we can trust you, God, to bring all things together and work all things together for your good. This is not blind optimism. This is biblical hope. And I pray for those of us that are settled in doubt right now, that, Lord, you would show up among us and say peace, and that you would move us from doubt to hope, that you would move us from doubt to belief, that you would move us from doubt to faith. We would trust in you, that we would start to see the ray of hope again, the ray of, uh, of, of the spring of hope would would birth and break through the fallow grounds of our, of, our, of our hearts right now. Be near us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.